Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Well, we're continuing our series going through the book of Philippians and sharing with each other what we think God is saying to us as a church as to what we're going to be doing and being over the next uh, four to five years. And we're using this um, Gaelic word. Apparently, it's an Irish Gaelic word, um, which uh, is pronounced aru. So do you want to say that out loud? Okay, this half of the front bit was okay. Is anybody out there? All right, we're going to say one, two, three. Nice. Very good. Likely got the accent at the end. Basically, you students are hysterical by now, aren't you? And we could say anything. Um, But it's this idea of shifting, of changing, of transformation, that as we're changed, the church is changed, and then society is changed as we see people's lives changed as they come to meet Jesus. I remember as a very small child going to a circus, And one of the things that really struck me about that circus were we had live animals. There were elephants that were paraded through our town. It wouldn't be allowed these days. It would be against animal rights. Um, But one of the things that really struck me was the trapeze act. Um, Last Sunday, I wasn't actually in church. I have a confession. I had a Sunday off. And I was at home watching the BAFTAs. And the BAFTAs at the Royal Albert Hall began with this amazing display by Cirque du Soleil of these trapeze artists just basically throwing each other up and down on these sort of bendy bars. It was just phenomenal. And at any moment, they could have wiped out half of Hollywood that was sitting in the first five rows. But it was just stunning. And when you see a trapeze artist or trapeze artist doing their thing, it is breathtaking. Perhaps you can remember the film The Greatest Showman, and one of the star scenes there involves Zac Efron and Zendaya, who plays a trapeze artist. And there's a, a scene in the film where Zendaya throws Zac Efron around the stage as they sing Rewrite the Stars. Don't worry, I'm, I'm not going to sing. I just reserve that for carol services now. 
And all the guys in the audience were watching that film, looking at Zendaya going, please drop Zac Efron, please drop Zac Efron, please make him fall, God, please make him fall. And it's an amazing display, and apparently they did all the stunts themselves. Um, there, was, there were, you know, uh, sort of ropes and things to catch them, but there was no net underneath them. And they had to practice and practice and practice and practice and build up the body strength to be able to do that particular uh, display in that film. The writer Henri Nguyen, who is a, a Christian writer about spirituality, he said this when he was chatting one day to a tra trapeze artist who were called the Flying Rodless. He said the secret is that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. The worst thing the flyer can do is to try to catch the catcher. A flyer must fly and a catcher must catch. This is deep stuff. A flyer must fly and a catcher must catch. And the flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher or her catcher will be there for them. The trapeze artist said the worst thing that the flyer can do is try and anticipate the catcher. And if the flyer tries to reach out and grab the wrist of the catcher, that always ends in disaster. The flyer has to be the flyer and the catcher has to be the catcher. Well, what's the link, somewhat spurious, between that and those verses that Rosemary read a few moments ago for us? Well, in these verses, in Philippians chapter 4, if you like, the early church leader Paul is encouraging the church in Philippi to see themselves as a flyer and to allow God to be the catcher. He's saying to them, I want you to trust your lives to God and rely on God to be God, to catch you, and for him to do his part as you do your part. Remember, as, as Libby said at the start of the service, that Paul is writing these verses from prison. And he's advising these early churches that he's writing uh, from prison as to how they can live a life that is distinctively different and faithful to God. How they can show God's love to the society and the context and the culture in which they find themselves. And how they can show the people around them the difference that following Jesus has made to their lives. Where to use the words from our strategy they can deepen their influence. That's one of the three things that we believe God is calling us to do. The third thing is to deepen our influence in the city. We hope to do that through different ways, by planting perhaps three new congregations in the next five years, by training people and helping people to have a clear voice to power, and by training and releasing leaders right across the church and in business and in society and in arts and in a whole different range of places that we might deepen our influence in the city, in the nation, in our culture. And Paul is writing to this church in Philippi, and he's saying, I want you to deepen your influence. I want you to speak clearly to power. I want you to be salt and light in Philippi. And he's writing in a society where the church is about to undergo extreme, extreme persecution. 
where in the next few years, just after Paul wrote this letter, the Roman Emperor Nero would use Christians as the scapegoat of the, of the whole of society. And thousands of Christians would be put to death in the next few years. And Paul suspects this is about to happen. And there's Paul writing under house arrest, writing guarded by Roman soldiers, writing to these churches that he helped to found and plant. And he's saying to them, I want you to live lives that are distinctively different. And I want you to endure. I want you to keep on going. I want you to live lives that are faithful and distinctively different and that show the society around you where you are in Philippi, how much Jesus means to you. And what does he say to them? Does he say to them, be strong? Does he say to them, pray more? Does he say to them, have lots of meetings? Does he say to them, have lots of church stuff? Does he say to them to begin a campaign to petition the emperor to preserve the rights of Christians so they'll be looked after? Or does he tell them to be brave and, uh, you know, long, long before there were British Christians, just to have a stiff upper lip and just to cope with it. He doesn't say that. His final bits of advice is a bit paradoxical. It goes against our culture. If we're honest, it goes against common sense. It's, it's counterintuitive. Because faced with this wall of opposition, with this horrendous persecution that is about to be unleashed upon the Christian church, where Christians will be set on fire in Nero's gardens just so that Nero can walk in the garden at night time. There'll be human torches set ablaze, Christians set on fire just to keep the emperor amused. What does Paul say to this church in Philippi? He says something that at first glance seems ridiculous. He says, celebrate, verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. He says, if you're going to get through this persecution, if you're going to endure what's about to happen to you, then I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you a secret of spiritual strength. Celebrate, rejoice, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, he says, just in case they missed it, I say rejoice. In fact, the word rejoice or joy occurs 16 times in the letter to the church in Philippi. <coughs> Paul obviously wants this church to learn a bit about joy. He probably suspects that they're not a very joyful church. And if they're going to get through what's about to happen to them, they need to learn how to be joyful. Now, the word rejoice isn't a sort of be happy word. It isn't go around with a stupid grin on your face. In the 1970s and 80s, long before many of you were born, um, Christians became known for what was called a swag, S-W-E-G, a silly, wet, evangelical grin. And they would go around saying, yeah, I'm, I'm rejoicing in the Lord and everything's fine. And yeah, everything's actually falling apart in my life, but I'll sing these happy songs and it'll be okay. That's not what the Apostle Paul was actually meaning when he said rejoice in the Lord always. He, he, he's not saying just hold hands with each other and, and sing Kumbaya or whatever it is. Didn't, don't sing plinky plonky Christian worship songs and deny the reality of what you're going through. 
That's not what Paul means when he says rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. The word means a deliberate, planned, pre-planned, and decisive thought-through decision to celebrate. It's not spontaneous. It's not quick, let's have a party, or quick, let's sing a song. It's making a decision. It's a resolve of the will that not denying what's happening to you, not denying the circumstances, not denying or reducing the importance or the seriousness or the difficulty of what you're going through, but despite what you're going through, you choose to remember who God is. And you choose to remember God's goodness. And you choose to delight and celebrate who God is. And remember, Paul is writing these words from prison, facing certain death. And basically, he's saying to them, in the face of this persecution that you're about to endure, in the face of the difficulties that you're about to go through, in the face of horrendous things that you're about to see and suffer, where your friends and fellow Christians will be put to death and they'll be torched in gardens and they'll be set on fire and they'll be crucified and that will be horrendous and it will be unimaginable pain. I want you now to decide to resolve to have a party, a celebration, to deliberately choose to remember that God is good Not to deny your suffering or the persecution that's going on. Not to ignore the pain or the grief. Not an easy believism that ignores the reality of the situation that you find yourself. But a deep and profound decision to live life generously, to look for the good, and to remember who God is. That's what it means to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And the next thing in verse 5 he says is, let your gentleness or your reasonableness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The word gentleness is an intriguing word. It can mean patience or softness or modesty or graciousness. It's quite hard for one English word to to sum up what it actually means. It's the opposite of contentious or abrasive or self-seeking. The ancient Greeks described it as justice and then something better than justice. And it's a bit like a person who, who knows that rules and regulations are not the last word, but who's prepared to go beyond the rules and the regulations to do the right thing. I was trying to think of an example, and and the closest I I could come to was um, an incident that happened about three years ago. About three years ago, uh, those of us who were on the clergy team at that point uh, were going down to uh, a a conference, a learning community that we'd been going to uh, for three years down in Peterborough. And this was the first time that we were going down to it. And uh, I booked the tickets for the train. And we got the train tickets, and we arrived at Waverley, and we went onto the train. And just as we'd sat down at about 10 to 12, two other people arrived in our carriage by our seats. And they said, excuse me, but you're sitting in our seats. And I looked at them and said, 
I don't think you are, actually, uh, because we booked these four. Thinking, do you know who you're talking to? This is the clergy team of St. Paul's and St. George's Scottish Episcopal Church. We're on our way to a very important conference in Peterborough. We're on God's business. That was going through my head. I'd never said that, but that was what was going on behind the scenes. The person very politely looked at me again and said, no, I'm sorry, but actually we have booked those seats. You're sitting in our seats. I, I, I don't think so. At which point, two other people arrived and said that the other two members of the clergy team were also sitting in their seats. And I said, no, 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 I don't think so, because we bought, I bought these seats several months ago, and I know that they're the right seats on the right day at the right time. At which point, one of my clergy colleagues, who can't tell the difference between Lent and Advent, um, she <laughs> leaned in and said, gently and quietly and lovingly, Dave, have you got the right date? And with all my Christian charity, I said, yes, of course I've got the right. What do you think I am? Stupid? You didn't answer that. Um, And then I looked at my tickets. And guess what? I booked them for the wrong week. The dates of the conference had been changed. I'd forgotten that when I booked the tickets. And I had booked them for the next week. So here we are now with three minutes to go to the train leaving Waverley down to London King's Cross. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I haven't got time to get to the ticket office and back and buy some new tickets. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? So I ran, I sprinted down the train to the other end, and there was the guard. I explained the situation to him. He looked at me as though I was stupid. I said, I can't go and buy another ticket. He said, I know you can't go and buy another ticket. I said, I thought, okay, in for a penny for a pound. I said, look, we work for a church. He gave me a sort of pitying look that said, well, of course you do. No one else would employ you. And we work for a church. We're going on a Christian conference, and we can't afford to buy four new tickets. And please let us on the train. And he said, okay, get on the train, and we'll see what happens. So we got on the train. Halfway through, he came down to check our tickets. He looked at me and went, huh, it's you. And I went, Yeah. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll let you go down to Peterborough this way. It's, it's not my responsibility, but I'll let you do it, and it's okay. Um, you have to sort it out when you get to Peterborough about the return ticket, but I know he's a faff, and on this occasion, I'll let you off. And just as he was going, he said, which church do you all work for? And I said, oh, it's an Anglican Episcopal church in the center of Edinburgh. And he went, huh, I go to an evangelical church. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And I felt about this big. But we got to Peterborough. We got to Peterborough, and I thought, okay, let's sort this out. We'll go to the ticket office. So we went to the ticket office, and it was like something out of a comedy sketch. So Libby and the other two clergy were standing watching me as this unfolded. And I went up to the ticket uh, desk, and there was a guy sitting on a stool like this. And it was, if you've watched the two Ronnies, it was like that. As I explained the situation, and genuinely, he went, sure, let me get this right you've booked a ticket for next week. Yes. But you don't want to go back next week. I said, no. You want to go this Wednesday, don't you? I said, yes, we do. He went, well, I'll see what we can do. And this is the speed. He got off his stool and he went, I'll just be a minute. And he moved at this speed towards the door. Eventually, he went through to a back office. He was in there for about five minutes. Eventually, they came back. 
And it was like something out of a comedy sketch. I was thinking, where are the cameras? And he looked at me and he said, sure. If you were to buy some new tickets for this Wednesday for the four of you to go back from Peterborough to Edinburgh Waverley, that would cost, look at his computer, £485. But that will never do, will it? And I said, no. I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I said, what? He said, we'll do it for free. I went, oh, that's very kind of you. He said, okay. And I forgave him for the speed with which he had done this <laughs> transaction. And he let us travel the next Wednesday for free on the wrong tickets. He was a man who demonstrated the gentleness and the reasonableness that Paul is talking about here. Because according to the rules and regulations of, at that time, Virgin... He should have charged me £485. But he went beyond the rules and the regulations because he knew I'm a twit. <laughs> and he felt sorry for me. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying be generous, be patient, be gracious, be gentle. Why? Because the Lord is near. Both recognize that God is close and he's right next to you. So live a life that's different, but also recognizing that the Lord is near because he's, he's just around the corner almost. He's, he's coming back soon. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your gentleness be evident to all because the Lord is near. And once you've done that, Paul says, then ask God for help, verses 6 and 7. These apparently are the most highlighted verses in the most highlighted book on Kindles around the world. Philippians chapter 4 and verses 6 to 7. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, present your requests to God. In the ancient world, anxiety was a way of life. We think we're anxious as a society now. We think we're anxious as a culture now. But in the ancient world, anxiety was a way of life. Faith and life was full of superstition. There were gods and goddesses everywhere who were all potentially out to get you. You were at the mercy of the god of the weather or the god of the sea or the god of the harvest. So you made sacrifices to appease them, to make them happy so that they didn't get you. The god of the Bible is a very different god. The God of the Bible is not a God who is out to trip people up. The God of the Bible is described again and again as a God who is kind, who is gracious and compassionate. A God who is for you and not against you. And what Paul is saying is here is don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, present your requests to God. Tell God how you're feeling. Tell God what you are facing. Tell God of your anxiety. An anxiety that is not based on who he is, but is based on what is about to happen. Max Licardo puts it this way in his book on the book of Philippians. He says, anxiety is a meteor shower of what ifs. It is trepidation. Fear sees a threat. Anxiety imagines one. Fear results in fight or flight. 
Anxiety creates doom and gloom. And if we're honest, most of us are anxious about things, most of which never actually happen. Most of us lie awake at night wondering, what if, what if, what if? And most of the things that we wonder what if about never actually happen. But it doesn't stop us worrying about them. Max Licardo says anxiety is a meteor shower of what ifs. Paul encourages the early church in Philippi and encourages us to pray about the things that we're anxious about. The problem often is that we would prefer to stay worried. We would prefer to worry about things, to be anxious about things, than pray about them and then hand them over to God. One writer has described thanksgiving as worry's kryptonite. It's very hard to stay anxious about something if you've handed it over to God and given thanks for it and given thanks that God is in control of that particular situation. The reality, of course, is that most of us do pray about something that we're anxious about and then we grab it back off God as if God can't be trusted to do the thing that we've just prayed and we've just asked for. Again, Paul is saying, you be the flyer and allow God to be the catcher. You do your job and trust God to do his. And the result, he then says in verse 7, is that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And he pictures the peace of God, the shalom of God, as standing almost like a sentry at the door of your mind or at the door of your soul. That if you pray and trust God and lay your anxieties before him and don't grab them back, then the peace of God, as you recognize God's power and God's rule and God's sovereignty and God's kindness and God's patience and God's graciousness, then the peace of God will then guard, stand as a sentry over your heart and your mind. But then having prayed about it, he tells them to fill their minds with good things, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And as you meditate on those things, Paul says, then the peace of God fills you. He says, hand things over to God, lay your anxieties over to God, but then think differently. Then don't just leave a sort of vacuum or a void, but then start to think about those things that are true and noble and pure and lovely and right and admirable and excellent or praiseworthy. The problem for some of us is that we spend little of our time thinking about such things. We're surrounded by negativity in our culture. We're surrounded by negativity in social media. Not many of us will sit down and watch a television program and at the end of it think, oh, I feel really uplifted having watched that. I feel mentally and physically and spiritually and emotionally refreshed having watched that TV program. I'm so glad I, I looked at that Twitter thread. Or I'm so, look, I'm so glad that I looked at that Instagram feed. Or I'm so glad that I looked at that Facebook 
whatever it was. Because I feel so much better now I've done that. Paul says whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We're surrounded by negativity. We're surrounded often by social media or by media, whether it's television, the internet, whether it's films, whether it's podcasts that are full of unhelpful images and stories, fake news, ugly, violent, vicious things, a culture of blame where if something goes wrong, somebody has to have done something wrong rather than just someone has made a mistake. Somebody has bought the wrong train tickets for the wrong week. Paul says, fill your minds with good things. It's been said that people are not what they think they are, but what they think they are. The question for you and for me is, what do we fill our minds with? What do you think about Monday to Saturday? If you were to get a report on your device, whether it's a phone or a tablet, then rather than saying whether your percentage of screen time had gone up or down, it was able to say, true, 40% up. Noble, 30% down. Right, 10% up. Admirable, 40% down. Maybe the way in which we think and then the way in which we live would be different if the things that were coming into our minds were different. So Paul says, do you want to live a life of deepening influence? Do you want to show the people around you the difference that Jesus has made in your life? Then remember who God is. Decide to celebrate his goodness. Decide to trust him. Decide to pray and live as though he is in charge. Many of us pray as though God is in charge, but we live as though we are in charge. Paul says, pray and live as though God is in charge, that he's in control. And if you do, Paul says, no matter how hard, no matter how tough, no matter how difficult life may get, then the peace of God will be with you and give you the strength and courage that you need. And the question for you and for me this evening at the start of this new week is a very simple one. Do we want to live those sort of lives? And it's a simple choice, almost. Do we want to, then it sounds silly if you put it this starkly. Do we want to lead a life of anxiety? Do we want to lead a life of fear? Do we want to lead a life where we're always wondering what's around the corner? Do we want to lead a life where we're always complaining and grumbling and moaning and comparing ourselves to other people? Or do we want to lead a life where we trust God, where the peace of God fills us, where we think about things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy, and where Jesus so fills our lives, the way in which we think and the way in which we live, that even though we're going through hard times, even though we're going through tough times, even though we're going through the most unimaginable pain, we still recognize that God is in control. 
and we decide to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice.